Welcome to Uncommon. I'm Chance Lunsford. Today I have with me a very special guest. It's the man, the myth, the <laughs> the Pantone color. It's Zero HP Lovecraft. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to you, but first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm really glad to have you, and um, it's a pleasure to finally get a chance to talk to the man behind the account. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, like I said, it's my pleasure. And I, my introduction is going to be very brief, and then I'll kind of kick it over to you. But I discovered you like a lot of people via Twitter. And um, maybe like a lot of people on Twitter who discover you and then don't immediately block you, um, I kind of have an edge to me of... Maybe not necessarily a soft outlook or a, or a non-critical uh, outlook when it comes to measuring my society, the one that I'm living in versus some of the other ones I know about from history or from comparing my grandparents' world to my own, for example, or things like this. Um, and I, I'm very philosophical in, in nature. And so when I discovered your account and began to read the things that you were writing, um, thoughts about maybe Christian originalism or uh, these kinds of things or uh, cultural critiques, but thoughtful ones, not just knee-jerk reaction, but taking the time to expound upon your ideas and why you thought them and why uh, just taking the time to explore the history of ideas and things like this. It, it's sort of very appealing to me because uh, obviously on the Twitter medium, that's not what people are inclined to do for the most part and then reading some of the blogs you've written and stuff like this uh, you get a sense that uh, there's a really developed uh, intellect behind this account and and i've i've listened to you talk before with this voice changer too and uh, that confirmed that sense so that's why you're here talking to me right now and i know i didn't really say anything about you but i don't really know anything about you but maybe you could just kind of fill in and some of the legend here for people so they kind of know who they're dealing with if they don't already. Boy. So I don't know what... Here's the thing. I've said this before. You may be aware. I'm really not all that special. I'm, I'm really just a guy who... Uh, I say... And I want to say this as humbly as possible, but I have the gift of the gab. And there are many gifts I do not have, but using composing words, I think is something I'm pretty good at. And uh, I've always been very interested in all of these philosophical topics, but I started my Twitter account as a confessional. You know, uh, I, I was talking into the void. I really just wanted to say things that I couldn't say to anyone in my life, like, that I knew personally, not my coworkers, not my friends, not even, you know, no one, hardly even my family. Like, not that my family wouldn't accept the things I think necessarily, but nor would they really engage with, with those thoughts. They'll say, oh, that's just you. That's just our son, you know, he's, he's thinking. Uh, so I started saying the things that I, that I believed, that I thought, and uh, it didn't find much purchase at first. And I was very shocked when a lot of people started wanting to hear me. Uh, 
And my, my first big break, you could say, which I, again, didn't seek. I never, I never set out to become this writer or this intellectual or this thinker, whatever you have. Like I, I always liked writing fiction. So I wrote this little story, The Gig Economy, and it went very viral for about three days. For three days and three nights, I like to say. And uh, <laughs> suddenly I had a couple thousand followers and I realized that people were enjoying sort of my, my little rants. So I started working harder on them because as you get more traffic, as you get more volume and people start seeing you, you, you think, at least for me, well, I have a responsibility then to say better things, to get them correct, to polish them, to make it be something I'm proud of. You know, even a thousand people subscribing to you in a way is not very many because how many of them actually see it and how many of them really engage all the metrics on these sites are distorted because the websites, the platforms, they have an incentive to distort them. They want to sell to advertisers and say, look how many millions of impressions you're getting. So they, they, they fluff up our numbers a bit, not, not the number of followers, but the number of impressions. Absolutely. Uh, anyone who works in digital marketing will tell you there's, there's some trickery going on. You can say fuckery if you want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking about chicanery, but I think my diversity, equity, and whatever the I stands for, uh, inclusivity committee might have a feeling about that. And so I was trying to decide if chicanery is on the forbidden list. You know, you can't say the word master now. This is something that they're doing at my at my real my normie job is they the word master is practically the n word. It's just like you don't you don't put it in any documents, you don't put it in any any uh, job postings, anything like that. It's like we can't say the word master because that might remind someone of slavery, and that would be deeply traumatic. That would be violent. That would be some kind of assault. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this chance but white people emit magic oppression particles and if any one of any other race gets it caught in the field they immediately do worse on standardized tests and job interviews it's we should probably wear lead suits yeah i mean the lead too would probably also with the poisoning help to uh, like dampen our life essence enough that we could then uh, be paying some sort of energetic reparations, right? We can only hope. We can only hope. I think that in if this insanity were allowed to go on long enough, we really might get to the Harrison-Bergeron world where people are listening to deafening cacophonies in their headphones and have weights strapped to their back to make it so that no one can think any better or move any better than anyone else. Have you read that story, Harrison Bertrand? No. Oh, it is one of the greatest all-time classics of sci-fi. Very short, only a few pages, uh, maybe, even, maybe even one page by Kurt Vonnegut. And it describes this very uh, vivid but very short world 
where there is a, a government agency that handicaps everyone. And however beautiful you are, however strong you are, however smart you are, you have to accept all these handicaps in order to bring you down and make everyone equal. So a man's very good looking. He has to wear like false teeth and ugly makeup or something like that. You have to look worse. If you're strong, you have to be shackled. If you're smart, then you have to hear audio that's going to disrupt your thoughts. And it's all administrated by a woman named Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general. And what I love about this detail is that Diana Moon Glampers is almost exactly the name of the woman who would perform this role. It's just, it's an incredible fit in some, in some way that I can't quite verbalize or rationalize that name matches the character. Uh, so I really recommend that story if anyone hasn't read it. I like Vonnegut. Good sense of humor. Good Definitely. Sense of humor. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was at a Costco today. Uh, I was there for a, a very few specific items, but there was uh, one of the ladies that they have selling things there, and she, <laughs> she had a face, one of the face shields on, and so it was causing a reverb with her voice. And she was very aggressively and sort of like New Jersey, uh, like nagging middle-aged housewife voice type thing. She was like, give the gift, <laughs> give the gift of membership, give the gift of renewal. The 18 year olds, they love to come here and get the gas. And she just was going off and off and off. And I was thinking to myself, I, I might have given the gift <laughs> of membership or a renewal to somebody if you hadn't been so off-putting. I mean, it was so unattractive to hear just this lady aggressively shouting at people about giving the gift of renewal and trying to guilt them into it or like, you know, various sort of sleazily door-to-door uh, -door salesman sales tactics to get you to re-up your membership to Costco, which like anybody who's ever had a membership, they always have a membership. It's not like anybody's going away from Costco. They never do. She doesn't even need to be there. And so I was thinking uh, <clears throat> that's very much, that's very much the marketing style of all the messages that we're told are very important for us to receive and to internalize these days. It's, it's some, it's some lady or some, just some very unattractive person, not just physiologically, although that's that, you know, physiognomy is real, but, but some person whose character is so aggressively distasteful and unattractive that it makes rooting for the thing that they're talking about almost impossible for a person who has any standards for their, uh, like signals that they're willing to accept. If there's, if there's any buffer at all, then most of the messengers make it impossible to, to really uh, like be on their side. And yet I find myself looking around and seeing millions of people biting so hard on some of these messages. And occasionally I find myself biting hard on them until I go through my process of self-analysis and realize I've been a sucker. And I think I'm, I'm just, I'm like a normal guy too, but I pay attention to these things. And, and yet I still find myself being a sucker sometimes. I guess I wonder, uh, you know, as a person who's been very thoughtful and taken the time to uh, express your your views and 
analyze the culture and to do it in a way where you're kind of in the thick of a culture that you're critiquing in a way like you're you're sort of in the you're sort of in the Vatican City in a way of the culture that you're critiquing and I guess I wonder like why do you suppose people are so susceptible to to being uh, jerked around in the ways that they are and even though I suspect that almost all of them know better on on several levels yeah that's that's another multifaceted question um the lazy answer and the the easy answer which is a little distasteful i think is to really lean into you know that old meme of the npc and i i've done more reading around this topic and i'm kind of fascinated how many people seem to hit on it you you find uh goethe referred to people as either puppets or natures and he thought that most people were puppets which means they just get pulled around by the strings and, and they have no agency or independent thought or capacity for it. And then a nature to go to was someone who had their own inner vitality and life force. So go to believe that. And then I was listening to Jonathan Bowden and he said that in, in communist China, they had this belief that only one in 20 people had leadership capacity so they would capture uh like an american platoon you know they capture soldiers and they take out all the officers from all the rest of the soldiers and then they believed there were a few people among those soldiers who would naturally inherit the mantle of leadership and authority and so they'd watch and they'd see who all the captured soldiers would defer to and usually there'd be a few and they'd instantly grab those people as well and say, maybe those people aren't officers, like maybe they don't have you know, a rank, but they have the natural capacity for leadership. So they pull those people out too. And all the officers and all of the natural leaders would go to one prisoner of war camp. I've actually written a little bit about this. I had a, a big thread one time about these, these prisoner of war camps. And the, the officers, the leaders, they'd go to a normal prisoner of war camp. They'd go to one where they beat you, they torture you, they don't give you food, whatever. The rest of them, the sheep, for lack of a better word, I'm not necessarily endorsing this taxonomy, but in, in, the, in the anecdote, the ones they thought were the sheep, they went to this other camp where they were treated nicely and they were enticed to slowly acclimate to the communist ideology. And, and I, I can link the thread if you're interested. I actually just lifted it from a chapter in Influence by Cialdini. And mm. this thread went really, really big. And I didn't intend it to. I was just writing up some notes to share with a friend and everyone like, wow, that's super, you know, interesting. Haven't seen it. It is. It's a really amazing story because they they would take these people who they thought were weak-minded and they would little by little get them to make concessions to to the communist ideology until many of them became really quite uh, militant and converted to it. And so the reason I bring up that story and also reference Goethe is because these are some of the different points I've found to sort of help me correlate the idea that maybe a lot of people just really don't have much inner life. And this is a horrible thing to think about. And it's a horrible thing to wrestle with because on the one hand, you feel like 
you're just being arrogant. You're just being solipsistic and you're failing to, to recognize humanity in most of the people around you when you say, oh, there's 5% of people who, who have this inner capacity for agency and, and there's 95% of people who don't. Like, how can you just condemn everyone, not everyone, but most people in the world like that? It, it feels like a very self-aggrandizing belief. It feels like maybe motivated reasoning, like you almost want to believe that you're better than other people. And the thing is, I don't want that. I don't want to believe that about myself, about others, and I don't want to have self-aggrandizing beliefs because I think that's a, a really, it, it's easy trap to fall into. You don't want to lie to yourself and exaggerate your own competence or importance. Sometimes you do actually, there, there are certain situations where you might benefit from that, but on average, I think it's, it's bad. So to, to try to answer your question, it's a very tempting line of thinking, and I see, I've found other precedents for it in some pretty diverse places, uh, you know, as I, as I try to look for the, the history intellectually of this idea. I don't think it's something you could ever really find with a scientific study, because are you going to base it on self-report? Are you going to uh, try to design some experiment that tests people for maybe contrarianism, their willingness to go against the herd. There's a big five trait called disagreeability. There are studies where they try to find out if people have the experience of an inner voice. And apparently many people say they don't, they say they have no inner monologue. And so then you start thinking about Julian James and wondering about the bicameral mind. You probably are familiar with this and, Indeed. and you wonder, is that, a true account, I personally don't really think that it is, but it's a fascinating one. But maybe it's a partly true account. Maybe it describes some people and not others. Maybe there's, you know, some some uh, recessive gene for having agency or something like that. And some people have the trait and some people don't. Maybe it's like eye color. I don't know. It's very, very hard to study. It's very hard to think about without running the risk of lying to yourself or believing something about most people that I think it's not just that it's not socially acceptable to believe, though it's not. It's also very, very dangerous to believe if you're wrong. Mm. I have a number of thoughts, but I think a story that's been kind of replaying in my head a little bit first will be good. And it's very simple. I was just driving down the road, very close to my house. It's a road I drive on almost every day. And there's a fella who spends a lot of time on the sidewalk outside of his house, waving to people. He's a cognitively impaired fella, and he's got the physiological features to match. He's not a Down syndrome person, uh, but he's got some sort of like tooth situation, and he's just got some some like some weird features. And I find myself, as I look over at him, I make eye contact with him, and I wave back at him. But every time I look at him, I get this, uh, like, crawling sensation when I remember that he and I are the same species. Because, uh, like, I'm, I'm several orders of magnitude in intelligence above where he's at, even if I'm only at average intelligence. And there are certainly people who, um, for whom I'm, like, uh, 
you have the same relation. Equi yeah. I'm equivalent to them in terms of being the drooling idiot. And they're the guy looking at me going, I can't believe that this dude is the same thing as me. And I feel like I have agency, but I've also made a lot of foolish decisions in my life. And I'm very pro-agency. I'm very pro-talking about your life as though agency is real because it seems to bolster the at least observed agency that I experience in my life. And other people report back the same thing to me. And so I speak of pro-agency and I, I tend to uh, go to war, at least intellectually even within myself, against ideas that um, remove the concept of agency from uh, my sort of central memeplex, I guess, uh, or the core tenets of my approach to life. But I do similarly sometimes wonder as I look at people, I'm a people watcher, sometimes I just sit in a place and I observe and I, th and I ponder and I ask myself, why is that person doing this? And I, and I watch what they do, and it's very much like some, sometimes somebody's just going here and there. And they seem to be very aimless, just distracted by the next round of whimsy. And other people are very, uh, almost, they have an inability to be distracted. It's, a, it's like a tunnel vision. And, and most of us exist somewhere along that spectrum. And there seems to be a handicap at both ends. Meaning, a ton of vision people tend to get taken out because they can't see the dangers approaching, and distraction people tend to get taken out because they never get anything meaningful done. A lot of times, it's them taking themselves out because they <laughs> they experience that uh, poignant sense of melancholy that comes with not having accomplished anything in your life. And I suspect, culturally, in fact, I'm well aware, at least on a certain level, although maybe not in the uh, cigars in the in the smoky back room way, although there are a lot of smoky back rooms with dudes smoking cigars and making decisions, but, uh, you know, the infiltration of culture, the Gramscian model, uh, the long march through the institutions, through education, through politics, through the media, uh, that's exactly what happened, and it worked exactly according to plan. I mean, I kind of got to hand it to them, but now we're in a situation where we don't have three generations to kind of reverse course, uh, and, and I, like, I foresee a splintering is the best case scenario here. And I, I wonder, first of all, I guess, do you, do you suspect that, um, on a societal level, we're going to see, uh, more, let's call it, uh, like official fracturing and, and then also, hmm, what do you suppose is going to look like if it does fracture in that way? So I, I have a lot of trouble imagining any kind of a split that is formal where, you know, we draw borders and it's like, you take Florida and I'll take, uh, you know, California or something like that. Like we're not going to do a draft of, of the States in the union or any, anything of that nature. Um, and I think that one of the maybe things that's telling about this is they say that uh, communists have to build walls to keep people in their society, but so, so the, the one side of the divide really doesn't want anyone to leave and they'll fight really, really hard to stop it. And they also, unfortunately are the ones who have most of the power right now, not all of it, but, but a lot. So I think I'd like to go back to what you said about, we don't have three generations to reverse course. I'm actually 
I'm a little more optimistic on that because the things that that are taught in schools or the that are enforced in boardrooms and and HR committees and so on, they're insane and they're life destroying, but they're also very, very hard to fully embody and to put into practice. And if you're trying to do anything, even if you're just trying to get through your life in an ordinary way, and I mentioned this, you know, they're removing the word master from all of our official documents at my job. Okay. That's, that's absurd. But ultimately, if, if they want to be able to function at all, if they want to get anything done, then there are places where those rules have to flex and bend a little bit. And like, if I write the word master in some document, are you going to call me out on it and try to rake me over the coals? Or are we just going to kind of both look the other way and let, let life continue? And so I think things could get a lot worse and they very well might. Uh, but collapse is civilizational collapse is usually not something that's acute. It could be, there could be like in a movie, a big natural disaster or something like that. Things could go to hell very quickly, but in general, collapse and renewal are both always going on around us. Things are continually collapsing. They're continually being renewed. And maybe what we see right now is that collapse is happening faster than renewal, but it's not at all a guarantee that it's going to keep going that way. And I think that there are a lot of people who are fed up and a lot of people who are, who are normal, who are not particularly to the left or to the right, who will go along with the flow at some point they just kind of have to ignore the insanity they'll be they're more like hovel's greengrocer they'll put up a sign that says like you know trans rights matter in their in their coffee shop in their store and they'll, they'll say if you ask them they say well yes of course they matter but in their life they're not they're normal if they encounter one of these people they're still going to expect them to behave in, in relatively functional ways in society. They're not going to like, there's flex, right? There, there will be many, many situations where things go poorly. We can fall. We have a long way to fall and some falling will occur. But I, I do think that there's just limits to how much people can comply with this insanity without destroying themselves. And in general, they will ride that line. And eventually, a lot of people, uh, you know, people say Twitter isn't real life, but it can be. It really is in a way. I mean, I've met many people uh, through this website who have real world, real, like as if, as if Twitter's not real. Like they have, they have jobs, they have families, they have business connections, they have influence in some cases. And a lot of people are fed up and a lot of people don't like the way things are going in the culture. And what we really face more than anything, I think, is there's, there's a lot of people who do like it. There's a lot of people who don't, which is why you allude to a split. But what will really happen is things will just slowly, hopefully, things could slowly start to go our way. I think that could happen. I think as people get older, I think uh, maybe, maybe the millennials and the Zoomers are just completely paused and can't be recovered, but I don't think so. I think a small number of people going back to this NPC idea that only 5% of people have leadership capacity, say it's true. 
there are about as many people on frog Twitter as there are maybe in the extreme left holding these levers of power, uh, pushing all this horrible propaganda on people. If you go with that, if you go with the idea that most people really are just living on autopilot, then I think we might be evenly matched. This is a weirdly optimistic thing for me to say, but I, I don't, I don't think it's as dire as it appears, but I sort of enjoy exploring the dire possibilities. Hmm. Well, I, I am often misconstrued as a doomer because I, I, I do, I'm less optimistic maybe than you in terms of, um, the existing framework lasting. I don't suspect that it will. Uh, to me, the bones of the system are just too, um, they don't have the capacity. It's like, um, there's this very interesting science fiction work. Uh, it's called the beam. And essentially it's, it explores the idea of like a new backbone for the internet that has a larger capacity and they needed it because nanobots were invented that do a bunch of stuff. Obviously you can, you can imagine what the nanobots do and that's mostly what it takes place. But uh, the idea is that the backbone of the internet wasn't sufficient to support the next generation of technology. And we're seeing that with web three right now is kind of emerging. I don't suspect that'll be the last iteration. And when I, when I'm talking about, uh, a fracture or a fracturing of civilization. I, I think it's necessary because I think we're going through a, a paradigmatic ascension as a society, or maybe not an ascension, but um, some sort of paradigm shift in which uh, the complexity of our society and the, the sort of amplifying effects of technology and the fact that that technology is uh, sort of alive in a lot of ways, feeding itself, causing us to feed it, causing us to sort of work uh, for it in a lot of ways. I, I don't, I think that the Westphalian interlude, as I have been referring to it for some time now, is coming to an end in that uh, something more akin to nation states or, or smaller uh, governance or more decentralized governance is going to be necessary because for the same reasons that you just said, people are... Um, tired of the bullshit basically and uh and when when you when you realize you've been lied to in one way and your your sense of deception turns on and you look around the world and you go wait a minute i'm being lied to everywhere Uh, everybody's lying to me then there's a lot more fed up that uh, that kind of comes up to here and here and starts spilling out in other ways. And I don't think that people have been well served necessarily for a while by this system. And, um, and there's certainly enough calls for revolution from a lot of, uh, angles that maybe, maybe we're going to answer the call. I, I suspect we will. And maybe you can tell me why you don't think so. Well, yeah, so a couple things. The first is that, that that line of thought that you have there, it also occurs to the people in power, right? Like they have the exact same line of thinking. They're fully aware of the stakes. They're fully aware of how people feel about it. And they know also, just like we know, that the internet allows these types of ideas to move very rapidly 
among people and maybe take hold of them. So in a way, it might feel like the reaction to 2016 and the Trump election and some of those things was really out of proportion to what actually happened. And I think it was. But at the same time, it's not that hard to imagine uh, dangerous ideas or revolutionary ideas spreading through the internet very fast and turning into actual violence and, and catastrophe. And I actually think if you were the person in power or if you were the guy in that smoky backfilled room, you'd be thinking about this a lot too. And I think it's why any hint of violence on these platforms is immediately stamped out. Like they'll let you say almost anything you want to be perfectly honest, but you even breathe a violent word, even out of a context, you can't even quote a book. If you were to take a passage out of a, a, a violent novel from a hundred years ago as a historian that can get your account banned, not just on, on Twitter, on YouTube, anything, because this is what the people in power fear. And they're really right to fear it because ideas can take hold of people and they can spread very, very fast now. Uh, you know, one thing I compare it to is think about the coronavirus overstated, you know, like clearly, clearly there's a lot of the fuckery going on there too, but it spread around the world very fast because we have airplanes. So internet does to mind viruses, what airplanes do to physical viruses, but even faster because they can travel everywhere in the world overnight. And so there's like a, a lot of doomsday ideology scenarios, I think, that sound really fanciful. But if one of them happened, we could probably go to a nightmare very, very quick. So even so, so that's that's one angle on it. And not that it couldn't happen, it definitely could. But I believe there are a lot of very smart people in the grips of whatever ideology, maybe one you and I both oppose, but who are very, very concerned with this problem. And it sort of explains some of the heavy handedness and some of the reactiveness. And if, if calling people racists or transphobes online, and there's other factors to this too, right? Like we could, we could talk about some of the other factors that go into this extremism and this craziness. And in some ways we're seeing it, right? Like in the same way that they'll use any tool to suppress a dangerous ideology catching on and going and causing, you know, some kind of horrible purge scenario. At the same time, all of these crazy gender ideologies and racial ideologies have done exactly that. They've spread through the internet very, very fast. They were incubated, you know, in colleges, maybe on Tumblr, on certain, even on live journal or, or a certain forum from something awful. There were a few boards there where people gradually memed themselves into being like Antifa thugs. And so a lot of these crazy ideas that we see going around and people acting like this are basically mind viruses that have spread through the internet. So one way you could look at it is that we're maybe some of us anyway, are trying to spread a counter virus. We're trying to create a, an ideology or participate in an ideology because you can only create it to a certain degree, right? In some ways it creates itself. Like you said, these, these things, they form and they become self-perpetuating and they have all sorts of quantities that we could analogize to an orga organism. 
but uh, you know, when we talk about like frog Twitter or any of these these types of like trad calves or groipers or all these things, these are these are also internet craziness, and uh, which one will win? <laughs> That's the question. Hmm. Oh, one other point on that, which is sorry. Uh, regarding eschatology, something that I've also taken a lot of interest in because I've lived through it is that there have been many, many cults and organizations in the 20th century. It's very well documented, but you can go back, you know, centuries and centuries and find people who predicted the end of the world or believed it would come in their lifetime. And one of my favorite case studies in this is called the great disappointment. And, uh, this was in uh, the 1800s, this fellow called William Miller believed that he had found a way to predict or that he had been given a revelation of when exactly Christ would return to earth in glory and trumpets would sound and, you know, whatever kind of Christian uh, eschatology, book of revelation sort of thing. And he convinced a lot of people. He wrote books or pamphlets and evangelized and convinced so many people the world was ending. And you can find this over and over and over people really want to believe in the end of the world and uh, that they'll see it. It's sort of thrilling to imagine it. So I always take an outside view on doomsday scenarios and I, I try to temper that enthusiasm or that interest because <laughs> it's, it's such a, a common thought form. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you something. There's, there's a history of, uh, like mental instability in my family and I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not, uh, like, uh, I'm clearly not immune to that tendency. And, but the weird thing about, uh, I'm not like a, a, a fully insane person, but I'm also loosely sane is a good way of putting it. But I have moments of prescience. I have all my life. I don't know what to make of it. Uh, it's almost like a seizure in a sense because my perception of light changes and the way that I perceive my body changes. And I remember the first time I felt this sense of prescience. I just looked at this kid and there was this golden light shining around me and it was shining around him. And I went, your name's Austin. And he said, my name is Austin. And I knew his name was Austin. But I've been having these moments more and more. I, I like to say um, that when the, the instances of uh, sort of deja vu and this weird sort of cosmic alignment happens, it's, a, it's like a sign of the times. And I have, my wife likes to watch the Utah Jazz basketball team. And so I watch it with her sometimes. And I'll be watching it and I'll say, oh, you know, Gobert didn't hustle back down to get there and that's why they scored and he was too busy complaining to the official and so he just lost the bucket. And then 95% verbatim, it comes out of the guy's mouth that's announcing the game. Or I'll be looking and I'll, and I'll say, I bet this is going to happen as I'm watching. Cause, and, then it, and then it happens. But if I try to influence, if I try to influence these moments of pressure, pre prescience uh, I always fail and I always feel that I have 
left that space where the accuracy of my perception is able to, for whatever reason, uh, be accurately predicting things, I, c I can't touch it. I can only exist within it. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is um, s sometimes I have some schizophrenic people I know who I would call friends who I've had throughout my life and they have these crazy experiences and there's always these nagging, there's always this nagging sense as they're describing these episodes to me that's like, that. but that's true. What you just said right there, that's true. It's like watching Charles Manson in an interview and you go, well, that's true, and that's true, and that's true, but that's not. And so what do I make of the fact that these four things have been couched together in this one guy? And I agree with three of them, but the one thing I don't agree with is the conclusion. Is the conclusion. And, and I guess I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, except that this is what I was um, sort of responding to that which you presented to me with. And so I think I'm just going to leave it with you and see what, uh, you know, See what happens. <laughs> yeah, so logic is not that reliable. Um, it can be. It can be very reliable. But I think more often than not, especially in, in daily use, in the layperson's use of logic, if you will, like when the average person uses logic, they're not using it in the way that a philosopher or a scientist does they're mostly using it as a kind of a PR system for something that's pre-rational, something that's much deeper and, and that, that maybe is for, I don't really think that your brain is a computer exactly, but let's just say something that's computed before it really enters your conscious mind. So Nietzsche said that a thought comes not when I want, but when it wants. And this is a very simple observation, but I think it's a very profound one because if we, if we wrap our minds around it and we understand what it means, it means that there's, there's something in you that thinks and that maybe call it your soul if you want to, uh, maybe call it your brain. I'm not going to be super picky about it, but that thinking process is something that happens pre-verbally it's something that happens automatically and reflexively and it's more like your heart beating it's more like your lungs breathing than it is like when you talk something out to yourself and you try to reason reasoning is something that happens later and you can discover things with reason like like reason can reveal knowledge to you if you have good perceptions if you have a bad perception then your reasoning will always be bad from it because the garbage in garbage out. But so I think that a lot of the time, these feelings of, of uh, prescience or of prediction, they kind of come from the same place where the you that thinks, the piece of you that thinks and that has, that puts the world together, isn't necessarily the part that's talking about it. And you can see this in a lot of ways actually, because when you're doing something athletic, I don't know if you, you know, play any, any sports or even if you just go running, something like that, you know, the system in your body that's moving your body, that's reacting. If someone throws a ball at you, you don't rush, reason out how to catch the ball. It happens. And then only after you notice I caught the ball, right? The logic's too slow. So it, I, I think that a lot of the time 
Now, I can't explain how you knew someone's name was Austin. That doesn't fit into that modality at all. But, but a lot of the time, you know, these sort of simpler predictions, what it's probably more akin to is a lag or an asynchrony between the various pieces of our, of our consciousness and the way they all come together. And another way you can kind of know this is that your eyes and your ears and your other senses, they're not all running exactly at the same time. Mm. Like your eyes are seeing things, your ears are hearing things, but your phenomenological experience of that synchronizes them together. They may not be perfectly in sync. And this, I think I have a vague recollection uh, of reading about this, that actually in people who are schizophrenic or who tend towards schizophrenia, they may experience greater delays uh, or they may have like more out of syncness. I'm kind of talking out of my ass here because I don't have a, a concrete recollection of it, but it's not unreasonable to think about that sort of like the timing and the way that you integrate all of these different ways of thinking and perceiving. If it's a little bit perturbed, shall we say, that that could manifest in a lot of these ways. Mm. That's my first thought anyway. Or maybe you're reading ley lines and you're, uh, you know, tuned into some, some ancient music. And I'm really open to that too. You know, I, uh, I hesitate to say this just because of the, the whole situation wrapped up with it, but, um, Let's just call me a person on the spectrum, okay? Sure. Um, which, like, a lot of people say that as an ask f to have some excuse or something. It's just I, I model my world in a certain way, and the way that I model the world, if I take a test, it tells me that I uh, am somewhere... <laughs> like firmly rooted in the spectrum. That's what I mean by For that. Sure. Just, uh, there's like some character traits and I'm this way and a lot of people are that way. Um, but in my quest to understand myself, a lot of the research that I've done and, and a lot of the behaviors that I have and a lot of the other things that I have going on as a person point to some sort of uh, like seizure situation, low grade seizure situation. Like I get migraines, hallucinatory migraines, lights, I'll, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, is, it's is it cool or is it horrible if it wasn't so miserable it'd be cool it's what i imagine ergot poisoning to be like where an acid sure. trip is fun but being severely food poisoned and thinking you're gonna die while you're on an acid trip does not sound fun and that's kind of how the migraines are it's like i'm mm -hmm. in such it, it's hard to believe you can experience so much pain and not die it's a thought i've had more than once when i'm in the middle of a migraine it's like i can't I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm feeling this right now. But but there's that, and then there's the autism stuff, and then there's, uh, like, when I'm in intense moments, you know, emotionally tense moments, I, I stim. I stim. I get all... My toes will start twitching, and I... Uh, but then I also have a mode where all that goes away. All that goes away. And it's when shit hits the fan, and I know that I have to do things... I call it the Vulcan mode. If one of my kids is injured or I know that I'm going to have to defend my life or I'm in a car accident or any of these things, I don't have any emotional attachment 
to anything. I can like I f- experience the physiological experience of the emotions I know I should be having, but I don't have any cognitive experience of them. So my heart rate increases, but my mind goes, your heart rate's increasing, but you've got to go over there and make sure that you staunch the flow of the blood and then move on to the next person. And then there's a task for you here. So um, the reason that I bring this up is because I suspect that a lot of people are experiencing some sort of low-grade toxicity-induced seizure disorder and that's what we're seeing a lot of these behavioral disorders and mental disabilities and um like it's like schizophrenic people or people who have the capacity to be schizophrenic they're always waiting for that trigger moment uh, maybe it's the first time they smoke marijuana maybe it's a traumatic event maybe it's they get sick maybe they get uh, poisoned by some poison some heavy metal poison or something but there's usually a trigger and then they're schizophrenic from then on and then it's like episodes for the rest of their lives and they never go back to the way it was before they had that triggering moment Uh, but i suspect that there are other mechanisms or other um triggers like that within people that are being triggered right now because of environmental stuff and the mind virus stuff that you were talking about before i think we are particularly vulnerable as human beings to these mental assaults and these mental viruses because we have not had the uh the time nor the necessity to develop as rich and capable mental immune system as we have physical immune system since we typically lived in small communities throughout the majority of the history of our species. And so now we're in this place where we have so much signal to noise that unless you're some sort of uh, like decryption super genius, uh, it's very difficult to hold on to anything meaningful coming at you with this constant deluge. it's also very difficult to separate yourself from the deluge because you're living within the world. You have expectations and a family and a job and all the other stuff. And to really, really stop all that momentum and take a look at your life and not do anything but whatever it is that you think you should be doing right now boy i don't know more than a hand people or a handful of people who've actually done that with their lives in a meaningful way or in a significant way and so all this talk of free will or not uh, sometimes i wonder like How much does it even matter when we are certainly subject to the vicissitudes of so much momentum? It's like the free will may be just the the like sea foam deciding whether or not they're going to bubble here or bubble there. But the massive flow of history, the momentum of humanity itself is uh, like, does it even matter? Sometimes I ask myself whether I have free will or not. (laughs) <laughs> I, I wouldn't honestly worry too much about that question. I, I don't, I don't think you, um, I don't think that there's, it's a great question, to be honest. Everyone has some, like, we, we can all make choices and our choices matter. And people who believe that their choices don't matter are very easily swayed and taken advantage of. And their choices still matter. They just make them in really dumb ways. Um, as, as to whether those choices are free, I think I think the concept is not well framed. But what you were saying earlier about you know being maybe a little bit autistic or having these spectrums or being schizophrenic or what have you, I think it's not necessarily a disadvantage, and in some ways it can really be a strength because 
if you don't experience the world the way most people do, then to make sense of what normal people do, you have to explicitly learn their thinking, their behaviors. You have to model them. You have to model them in a way that they don't have to model themselves. Like it becomes very, it's very, very natural. I think for a neurotypical person to just, what is neurotypical even really like perhaps there's some bell curve or something again, hard to measure, hard to conceptualize, but it appears that most people do have a very intuitive understanding of how normal people think. But if you don't have that for some reason, then you have to learn it. You have to learn it by observation. You can learn it from reading books. You can learn it from maybe someone who teaches it to you. And I myself, I don't, I don't think I'm on any kind of spectrum necessarily, but I, it took me much of my life to make sense, even in a very basic way of why people did things and what they like, what was motivating them? Because I just don't feel many of these like social cues, like you're supposed to act in a certain way or express a certain emotion to people. And I, I just don't feel those inclinations and those desires mm. the, the way that most people seem to not that I'm a robot or anything, though I have been called that, but it just, I feel things differently it seems and so one of the things that fascinated me for a long time uh was reading behavioral psychology but also books about pickup artistry books about social psychology uh, books about sociology because i wanted to understand why are people doing the things they're doing why are they thinking the way they're thinking when when none of those thoughts feel natural or intuitive to me and eventually I found the right books and I read enough things and I realized, you know, you can just make small talk with people. You can just like small talk is actually retarded. It's a really stupid way <laughs> of communicating. Yeah. And, and like, yeah. you just learn a few really simple social scripts and everyone will think you are normal. And you just learn, like, don't, don't try to analyze, don't try to like, never take words at their at their surface value if someone asks how you're doing the answer is fine this is actually something i read in like a book it was like a pamphlet for immigrants trying to come to america in like the 1970s or something it's like how to speak basic conversational english and it was like if someone asks how you're doing the answer is fine and mm. in a way like little tricks like that that i i don't know if people's parents teach them or if they just pick it up i don't know i didn't get all of that and I had to learn it explicitly, <laughs> and, and that's why. Me too. I, yeah, yeah, and that's why I write in the way that I do, and why I'm able to like draw a lot of these connections. Because one of the some of the books that I've, I've talked about mentioned these before, but I always recommend Impro Improv for Actors and uh, Irving Goffman, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, and these two books also uh, Eric Byrne the uh the games we play i think is is the name of the book these books like they're not based on empirical science per se they're based on observation maybe science is overrated obviously it, it has become a very corrupt institution now but it's just these men they wrote about how people work 
And reading it and hearing it explicitly made me able to do it and understand it in a way that I never could before. And I became much, much more socially functional. And I don't know if, and this was in like my early 20s, and I don't know if, if most people just seem to be born with the sense of what these books are saying or what, but I had to learn it explicitly. And I don't mind, I don't mind saying that because like I will get, I guess, attacked. Look, if you're on Twitter, people are attacking you. I think um, they are say something, <laughs> someone, maybe not you, they're attacking. Like I attack. No, they're coming so for I me. Expect, yeah. You believe it. <laughs> yeah. They come for all of us. It's, it's a very aggressive and, and combative place where people will take the thinnest pretext, they will mi willfully misinterpret you, or sometimes they won't. Sometimes they just hate the exact thing that you're saying or that you believe, even when that thing seems totally benign. And, uh, you know, some people will say, oh, this guy, you know, he's not socially, like, whatever. They, they think I'm not socially correct. They think that I'm missing some, some normal human empathic module. And I say yes, but I think that that can be uh, a, a source of great strength as much as it is like, uh, you're not normal, bro. Like, okay, great. I don't want to be, some people maybe want to be normal. I don't particularly want to be in every way. In some ways I do. Another thing is like, you know, you talk about exhibiting agency and having a laser focus. You were mentioning these things, but there's so many areas of your life where you probably don't exert any agency. And then there's some where you do. And those are the areas that are interesting to you that you have an affinity for that matter to you. But I think about like, probably when you uh, listen to music, if you're not a music buff, if you're not a guy who's really into music, maybe you are, you probably just kind of, you have very little agency with regard to music. Maybe you just listen to whatever the radio plays. Maybe you just listen to, you know, Spotify's recommendations. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know, some people are NPCs with regard to music. Other people are NPCs with regard to philosophy. I happen to think philosophy is a fruitful thing to not be, or a fruitful place to express some agency. Maybe not for everyone. Food is another area where like some people are connoisseurs. They invest a lot of agency and time and thought into what they eat and where it comes from and how it's prepared and where they get it. And other people, they just don't really care. They just go to the corner shop and they buy, you know, whatever, whatever food is available, it's not a big deal for them. So I think that you can kind of, when you talk about agency, you can think about the domain where you're exercising it. And there's also probably a lot of domains where you're not, and that's not necessarily bad. It might not matter. You might not need agency in every single tiny area of your life. Probably if you wanted to, you could, you could do a really deep dive into your toothbrush. And you could learn a lot about toothbrushes and the history of them. And you could find the perfect brand of toothbrush. You could make your own out of wood and like beaver hair bristles or something, you know? Well, you just showed a bunch of agency <laughs> in the domain of your toothbrush. Beaver Who hair. fucking cares, right? <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, you have toothbrush agency. Great. Good for you. I'm going to be a toothbrush NPC. I'm just going to buy the one they sell at the drugstore. Hmm. Man. There's maybe there's maybe one one last personal anecdote I'd like to communicate before we start winding this down. We've been going for a while now, and it's been a very fruitful conversation. And I, number one, I'd love to uh, have another conversation with you if you're willing sometime. But there's there's a point there's a point that you made that I want to just bring up a little bit. And you said 
it took you till your twenties to kind of figure out how to understand and the the basic scripts of uh, basic social interaction so that you could uh, pass as it normally when you wanted to, I suppose. Uh, I don't think that the description of autism is quite right for somebody like me. I, I described to you before how when it's on, it's all the way on. It's like when I feel, I feel at 11. And when I was a kid, I remember just feeling all the time. And it was overwhelming you know i was overwhelmed by my feelings all the time but i also wasn't i hadn't taught myself or been taught or learned a behavior that i shouldn't be turned up to 11 all the time i mean i was annoying and obnoxious and that got on people's nerves but nobody had tried to like uh, hurt me for being all the way who i was but i'm an odd dude uh, and you know i allowed the world to hurt me because i was open to the world and then they weren't open back to me in a lot of ways and so uh, I, th I think I just kind of developed that that Vulcan mode that I talked about is is my way of passing it's like I don't know how to feel kinda I just know how to feel all the way or not at all and so I can be very cold and uh, and it, ha it does have its, it does have its advantages um, but then again the the few that I keep in my personal relationship and who I give that trust to uh, give all of myself to. My my wife and my children are a perfect example of this. Uh, I feel totally comfortable turning it up to 11 with them because they know who I am and I trust them and I love them and they trust me and they love me back. And so we foster that kind of relationship. And so I think that for uh, maybe there's a lot of folks out there who it's we're encouraged as men or as people to either turn off our emotions or to give ourselves over the, to them in such a way that then we no longer put any thought into how we're supposed to respond to them, that we divorce the logic in the emotion. And I think that's very damaging. You know, those emotions, and, and like you talked about before, the ability or the tendency for us to have emotions and have thoughts and have responses, uh, before we had the opportunity to go back through and cognitively process them in a post hoc manner to try to come up with some sort of logical reason why we did the things that we did, well, that's a very beneficial process, but only if you allow yourself to honestly express the emotions and the state that you, it's like your emotions and your thoughts and then the cognitive processing that come after need to all be in alignment and the way that those things go into alignment is by learning how to accurately trust and and know when to trust those individual signals and then the cognitive aspect of layering them later to get to the bottom of it and and so um i just wanted to kind of put those things together because i think you were kind of driving at that for a lot of the conversation and i'm resonating with that now is just like if if a person like you or i this has been a nice conversation. I didn't know what necessarily to make of it, but you're a very pleasant guy to have a conversation with, and you're smart, and you have the ability to expound on ideas. And I have found with this podcast, I can talk to presidential candidates. I can talk to political, like, pugilists. I could talk to authors. I could talk to non-Twitter personalities. I could talk to... Joe Schmoes, and I've talked to all of those kinds of people. And almost every single time, 
If I open up myself to them and be genuine with them, they open up themselves to me and be genuine with me. And you would never think that that would be the case if you looked at the exchanges on Twitter, but you would know it was the case if you had ever had a conversation with your neighbor. And by making you my neighbor with this little video conversation, it's like, uh, I'm going to be on your side forever now unless you burn me because I feel like I know you and I want the best for you because you did me the favor of having this conversation. So in that light, and you can respond to whatever you want, but there's a really cool project that you're involved with that is sort of taking some of those ideas about um, making community mean something, um, making uh, these bridges that we're building online into something more and I'm talking about the Passage Prize, which you're going to be judging. And I really want to give you an opportunity to talk about that. And I think maybe it wasn't the smoothest segue, but I did okay. So why don't you take it from there and let people know what's going on with that? Yeah, no, you did, you did great. I think, um, thank you. And I think that, uh, you know, on the, on the topic of uh, turning feeling up to 11, you know, there's there's definitely places and times when it's appropriate to just open up and be yourself. And I think the vibe you've got on this podcast, I don't know if you published the video, but you've got this like black curtain behind you and the way the lighting is set up, it feels very personal. Like it feels like a very friendly, like way to talk to someone. So you may be discounting that like you've, you've perhaps intentionally, perhaps accidentally created a really open vibe. Uh, for it. I don't know if your listeners are going to be able to see the video if you do it to YouTube or something, but yeah, I publish them both. So they'll, they'll see yeah, how, but I, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> but I know I, I think it helps. And, um, yeah. And then, then there's also, you know, the, the place for this maybe more stoic or more like regimented and, and almost ritualistic interactions. And like, frankly, when I'm at work and I'm dealing with coworkers, I'm quite glad there are social scripts to follow and that there's words and metaphors and a whole language that I can borrow from that actually prevents me from having to open up to those people unless I really <laughs> want to, unless it's appropriate, you know, like, like with your family, absolutely. You should be, you know, fully, fully present and, and available, but you know, maybe, maybe with like, uh, the people, who are farther from you, who you have to interact with in a professional capacity. I would love to talk about professionalism more, but let's talk about the Passage Prize. So the Passage Prize is being organized by my, <laughs> my good friend, Lomez. And uh, he he's a man who's going places. He's making moves. And he's someone who I'm really, really glad is on our side. He is doing the legwork, he's securing money, he's making the connections that need to be made. And right now we are offering a uh, cash prize uh, for original works of fiction and poetry. And you can submit those to Lomez, his handle on Twitter, L0M3Z. And there is a uh, total altogether, we're giving away $15,000 worth of prizes and we can pay it out in crypto. You can preserve your anonymity. There's three categories. There's a uh, fiction, which I am judging. There's poetry, 
which is being judged by Curtis Yarvin. There's visual art, which is being judged by Gio. I think he says his name, Penichetti, Penichetti. I'm sorry, Gio, I'm not Italian. I don't know. I hope I didn't butcher your name. <laughs> and oh, it's actually a fourth category, literary nonfiction. So the first prize in each category is going to be $2,000. And uh, I'm really, really excited about it. I think that we have a lot of talent uh, out there. And some people say, I've heard this criticism, and I think it's really stupid, that if $2,000 is all that's standing between you and writing a great story or a great novel, then you're not going to make it. You were never a great writer in the first place. That's bullshit. Don't listen to people who say that. Because, you know, I was a complete just amateur, and in many ways I still am. And all that made me start writing was one day I read a story about Murakami. You probably know Murakami, this uh, Japanese author. He's written many, many books. Um, one day, he was sitting at a baseball game, and he was not that young at this time. I think he was maybe in his 30s or thereabouts. And he was thinking about a novel he'd read, and he thought to himself, I could write a novel. And he did. That, that simple. He just thought, I could write a novel. And he did. And now he's a world-renowned author. He sold his books. He's very well. He's, he's internationally famous. Uh, I enjoy his writing. And it, it can sometimes be that easy. So maybe, and, and what made me start writing was reading that anecdote. I read it and I thought, huh, he thought to himself, he could write a novel. You know what? I could write a novel. And so I did. And uh, well, more or less, I wrote, I wrote some stories, some novelettes. And so maybe if someone on the internet like me is going out there and saying, here's $2,000 for you to write a novel, uh, maybe that's a little push you need. Maybe that's going to, you know, unlock this latent potential, maybe something you know you can do. And or maybe you don't know you can do it and you just haven't really ever put in the work and the time and tried. And I believe that our current culture and our current uh, paradigm in the publishing industry and in television and Hollywood and all these culture makers is extremely stagnant. It's nepotistic. It has focused on and become completely controlled by a hostile ideology. And they will never give people like me, frankly, a chance. And at this point, if they did, I wouldn't accept it because I don't need it. And frankly, and not just you, but all your listeners, none of you need it either. But we'll give you $2,000, uh, you know, if you if you win the first prize, and you should submit. That's my pitch. You must submit. Listen, man, uh, this is a subject that's near and dear to me because I joined Twitter in 2018, near the end of it, because I, I, I had some things to say. I felt like I had a mission. And by the end of that book, or by the end of that year, I mean, I had committed to starting a podcast and writing a book and writing a very long contribution to another book. And I gave myself three months to do those things, and I got them all done. And I wrote my book, and I wrote a contribution to another book that was like more than a third of that book, and I started my podcast. And the reason I'm saying this is because... I tried to write a book 20 times before that. And I never, I never, when I was trying to write those books, said, I'm just absolutely going to do this. 
And then I committed and I knew I was going to do it. I knew it was time. I knew I had something to say. I, I just got it done. And I wrote up until the very, like within five minutes of the time I said I was going to publish the book, I was writing in a coffee shop, editing down to the last second, and then I hit the publish button. And I kept my promise to myself. And so I didn't have $2,000 waiting at the end of that. Well, I did. I had a bunch of $1,000 waiting at the end of it because, you know, I sold some books. But you know if you're a writer that you want to write the thing, but you've been putting it off or you felt like you don't have the capacity or you need to practice a little more on these little things or whatever. But now's your chance. Now's your chance. Right. Take your chance. Take your chance. And if, if you don't win the prize, guess what, man? You wrote your book. You wrote your thing. You did the thing. You already did it. And you get to take that with you. Because you know how many people want to write a book? Almost anybody who's ever picked up one or picked up a pen. You know how many people write books? Like 1%, if that. 1% of 1% probably. So if you do it right now, you're. it's like, how could that be a lose for you? So I'm adding my full advocacy to participation in the passage prize, but not just that, but the sentiment behind it. Go for it. Make something that you care about and do your best job. And then you can say, I made something and I did my best job. And I guarantee you that that will be more meaningful to you than almost anything else that you could have done with your time. So please do. How's that? How's that for a pitch? Amen, brother. Amen. Well, look, man, uh, like I said before, I'd love to have you back on sometime if you're willing. I don't, I won't, you know, like make you commit to that right now, but is there anything else that you want to touch on right now? I mean, know that you have a book. You, uh, I'd like to, I'd like for you to plug it, but is there anything else besides that you want to touch on before we start winding this uh, bad boy down? No, I think you said it, man. And, uh, I'm definitely going to be traveling for the holidays and all that. So, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's stay in touch. Cause I'd, I'd be happy to do it again sometime. I will plug my book, though at this point, uh, you can no longer buy it because I made the perhaps unorthodox choice of only selling 200 copies and each one was an NFT. We sold that in one day and I was extremely uh, honored and touched that people would be willing to pay so much for my work. And I, I'm going to be uh, trying to release more announcements and help people kind of follow that process. It's a very small production house. It's a boutique operation. These books are being handmade in America. If you care for such things, they're hardbacks and uh, they have Smith. Well, so the, the leather bound one, it's bound with real leather. It has Smith sewing in the binding so it can sit flat. And the spine is actually like the, the binding of the pages is separate from the spine of the book. It's like actually sewn in. It's really cool. The paper is, is kind that of is cool rough that's and rustic books, too that's how books should be if you care yeah yeah right? it's 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 a yes. beautiful i have a test copy yes. and i can tell you it's a beautiful beautiful book it's going to take us you know um a little while to get it to everyone who bought it but we will deliver and i'm i'm very very pleased about it but there will be a paperback <laughs> in the future and at some point i hope to just give the pdf away to everyone uh for free because i i want my works to be read and that's mm. what i care about the most well, look, I would love to talk to you about that whole process on a on a more granular level because it's fascinating to me and I have all kinds of projects going on. I know you don't know that much about me, but I have a lot of irons and a lot of fires and, and this is one of them. So uh, that'd be cool. And, you know, uh, I like to give people some breathing room anyway. I wouldn't want to bring you on too soon and, and uh, 
wear out my wear out my welcome yeah. or yours for that matter. Well, I'm happy to connect you to my <laughs> publisher. I'm happy to connect anyone to my publisher. If you know, my DMs are open and I'm very uh, happy to try to respond to everyone who sends me a message on Twitter. I generally try to make that time. So, uh, you know, if you need an introduction to my publisher, uh, Ardian, he's a great guy. He will preserve your anonymity if you care. He will uh, help you to sell your book in his new cryptocurrency-based paradigm. Your book will be written to a blockchain. You'll have total control over every aspect of the publishing process. And, uh, you know, it's it's sort of the future. It's this Web 3.0. It's this uh, yeah, man. self-publishing yeah, man. on the blockchain. So you'll be empowered. We got we to gotta have a conversation. Uh, uh, yeah. and, and I think that's a great place for us to end it because I really want the people who listen to this podcast who get enticed by such things to uh, feel quite enticed. <laughs> Definitely. Because that's a very exciting subject to me. Okay. Well, look, man, uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I was, um, I don't know what I was expecting. Uh, I, I knew I was expecting you to be thoughtful, but um, I really felt like your humanity shone through in a way here that um, maybe doesn't get the opportunity to come through as clearly. Uh, maybe yeah, the voice changer doesn't help. Bias, but hey, but I think. Uh, I feel like at least for me, I got to know you as a human a little better and I was glad that I did. So thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. It was a, it was a, a really different podcast from, I think, um, pretty much all the others I've been on. So, uh, yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool vibe. It's a cool product. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, uh, I guess an odd man makes for an odd podcast and, uh, I, I guess I can't complain. That's well, a look, good thing. Uh, There's a lot of really, really samey podcasts out there. Hopefully I'll manage to maintain my oddness through it all. I guess we'll see. Uh, but look, I don't want to take up any more of your time. So uh, I'll let's, uh, let's put an end to this and I'll reach out uh, sometime after the holidays and we can see if we can reconnect. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much. And I know people are going to respond to this. Uh, because it was a great conversation. So cool. I think we'll end her right there, brother. Thanks, man. Have a really good night. Let me know 